0: Everybody, Welcome to Draft Chat. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts and joining me as per usual, Ben Fisher.
1: Ben, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm just going to get right into it. We are super excited to announce that we even have, look, I know preview season just ended, but we have our first ever preview from Strixhaven. That's right. We have a preview from the upcoming Magic set.
0: What are you doing?
1: You're you're all going to love this. We have official confirmation that Planes will be present in Strixhaven. We actually have four more previews. Uh, Islands... Will be present in Strixhaven. Uh, so will swamps, mountains, and this one's unconfirmed. We actually, we actually don't know about this one. But I hear forests are going to be making a return. I hate you. I hate you so much. I,
0: this whole time I'm sitting here like, what is he going on about? Why? I mean, like we haven't even done our Kaldheim shows yet. Where is he? What is he doing with Strixhaven?
1: I couldn't uh, resist.
0: Well, this is episode number thirty-one, and. We are talking, speaking of Kaldheim, we are talking Kaldheim mechanics today. So this is our mechanics show we do before every main set release. And we're going to go through all of the new mechanics, any re- reoccurring mechanics that that have shown backup for perhaps a second or a third or fourth or whatever time uh, in Kaldheim. But before we get into all of that, of course, I want to plug our Discord. That's the best place to go to get more involved with our community here, uh, the DraftChaff Traficionados, as they've lovingly been dubbed. So good. Feel free to jump into that, check out all of our different channels, and just keep communicating with, with the community here. It's also the best place to talk to us directly, if you, if you so desire that. And of course, the show is brought to you by you, the listener, via our Patreon. You can check that out at patreon.com forward slash pod if you haven't already. And and of course, this is our primary sponsor at this point. We have five different tiers available and you can help us out even just for $2 a month. Um, it's very little uh, outside of that one fee per month. It's it's out, It's very little commitment. You can cancel it whenever you want. And we've got a bunch of different perks over there to make it worth your while. So check that out if you're so inclined. Otherwise, enjoy the rest of the show.
1: So we're going to start off with a crack draft type thing. We're actually going to jump into... The draft chaff cube so for those that aren't familiar we've got a cube entirely of draft chaff uh, we put the finishing touches on a little bit few little yeah like a few weeks ago at this point we're still looking to fire some practices uh hopefully coordinated through our discord and you know, get some tuning done with this. I'm already excited to add some Caldheim cards into it myself. So, we're going to start off with Citizen Tactics. This is one of the green instant. Uh, it has Strive, so it costs one green more to cast for each target beyond the first. And until end of turn, any number of target creatures each get plus one, plus one, and gain tap. This target creates this creature... Another target creature. This is a nice little fight spell.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's fine, and it's uh, deployable on multiple creatures. Uh, kind of goes well with the uh, the go wide strategies.
1: Mm-hmm. Next up, we got Banishing Light. Everyone knows Banishing Light, right? Uh, Three drop enchantment, ETV, exile, and on land permanent. Always going to be great, uh, until it leaves the battlefield, that is. That's not that great. <laughs> Next up, we've got Honored Hierarch, uh, the significantly worse cousin of Noble Hierarch. It also costs one green is in a human druid, and uh, well, we, here we got a 1-1 one, one with Renown 1. So whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, if it's not renowned, put a 1-1 one, one counter on it, and it becomes renowned. So it, it kind of gets in there, earns its, I, I guess this was from so that they use sigils earns it sigil and then uh, once it's renowned it has vigilance and tap add one mana of any color to your mana pool uh, noble hierarch with many many extra steps yeah
0: build build your own noble hierarchy.
1: <laughs> yeah can get there though next up we've got skull muncher sorry skull mulcher I always mix that up four and a green for an Elemental, it's a 3-3, and it has Devour 1. So as this creature comes into the battlefield, you can sacrifice any number of creatures. This creature enters the battlefield with that many plus 1 plus 1 counters on it. So when it enters the battlefield, draw a card for each creature it devoured. So this is a, a sign for the tokens deck. Uh, if you are you know hoping to go really wide, which green can do, you can sacrifice, say, 5 tokens. This comes in with 5 one, one counters on it as an 8-8. Eight, eight and you draw five cards. That's pretty good.
0: Yeah, Skull is a great card. I'm a big fan. Um, And, you know, extra card draw is always good, especially if you're already in a deck that's like generating tokens or has other ways to value those sacrifices if you can get those effects to be more um, impactful than just the devour.
1: Next up, we've got Kazandu Blademaster. This is white-white for a 1-1 human soldier ally. That's right, we've got allies in this set. It's got First Strike and Vigilance. Whenever Kazandu Blademaster or another ally enters the battlefield under your control, you may put a plus-one, plus-one counter on Kazandu Blademaster. So this one gets out of control pretty quickly. Uh, you just start playing an ally or two every turn, and all of a sudden, you've got a 3-3 First Strike Vigilance. That's a great blocker and a great attacker which is exactly what allies are trying to be doing here. Next up, we've got Divination. Two and a blue, draw two cards. It's a sorcery. Yep. It's Draft Chaff, but it's good. Next, Deadly Recluse. This is one and a green for a spider. It's a one-two with reach and death touch. This thing is just a the king of one for ones oh
0: yeah i love i love a deadly recluse Mm -hmm.
1: it's going to be able to get in the way of any massive dragon or you know anything else really next we've got bellowing elk this is three and a green for a four two elk as long as you had another creature enter the battlefield under your control this turn bellowing elk has trample and indestructible so this is a four mana four power creature that is essentially going to have trample and indestructible as many turns as you're playing creatures now you can do this in a few ways on other people's turns during in this this draft set. There's some ways to make tokens at instant speed, especially, or you can flash in certain creatures. But for the most part, this is just a really strong attacker. Next, we've got dissolve. This is one blue blue for an instant. Counter target spell, scry one, pretty good. The blue decks yeah. want this, but next, Visionary Augmenter. Two white white for a dwarf artist artificer. It's a 2-1 with Fabricate 2. So it enters the battlefield, put 2-1-1 one, one counters on it or create 2 one, one colorless servo artifact creature tokens. So this is a sign for the blink deck. Uh, notably, this can go pretty well in blink or the go wide token strategy. Uh, you can do this a few different ways. If, I recommend if you play this out and you're planning on blinking it, make the tokens the first time and then put the counters on it the second time or maybe just make even more tokens.
0: Yeah, I think, I think this gives the the blue-white deck, the ability to go wide pretty quickly and pretty easily, which can help gum up the board and give you some resiliency later on.
1: Mm-hmm. Next, we've got Deathbringer Regent. This is 5-black-black black for a 5-6 dragon with flying when it enters the battlefield, if you cast it from your hand and there are five or more other creatures on the battlefield, destroy all other creatures. So you may be wondering, well, there's all these great tokens decks running around, all these decks going wide. How do I stop that? Maybe go for a more uh, reanimator or controlling strategy. Well, each color we've we made sure has at least one way to wipe the board. Deathbringer Regent is the way that Black can do this. It's also just awesome. I, I love this card. This has been one of my pet cards forever. Sign and Blood is our next card. It costs Black Black for a sorcery. Target player draws two cards and loses two life. Notably, one of the achievements in this cube is to kill an opponent with this card, whether by using it to draw them their last two cards of the library to have them uh, die to decking, or uh, as a black-black deal two to an opponent's face. Next up, we've got Rakdos Guildgate. This is a gate, it's a land, it enters the battlefield tapped, and it taps for black or red mana. Lands you can take decently high in this cube, as there are plenty of wedges supported. Notably, Mardu has an ally aristocrats uh, sub-theme. So you can kind of do all that stuff with with uh, you know the Rakdos Gate. We've got Pondering Mage next. This is three blue-blue for a three-four human wizard. When it enters the battlefield, look at the top three cards of your library, then put them back in any order. You may shuffle your library, draw a card. This, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, this is another great target for the blue-white deck. You just blink this over and over and set up your draws for the rest of the game.
1: Mm-hmm. Last card, we've got Chemister's Insight. This is three and a blue for an instant. Draw two cards, and it has Jumpstart. You may cast this card from your graveyard by discarding a card in addition to paying its other costs, then exile it. So we've got a lot of interesting graveyard synergies going on in this cube. Milling Chemister's insight into your graveyard with something, uh, or, you know, happening to... Use this as an enabler, maybe using this to pitch a large creature that you want to reanimate. There's a lot of versatility, and worst case scenario, it's a format draw to an instant speed.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you can, you know, you get the ability to cast it again later if you if you so desire, and it's an instant, so you could use it in response to something that might be, you know, messing with your graveyard if you need. Mm. So now the big question: what's the pick? That is the big question. I'm eyeing up the pondering mage. To be honest, the blue white deck, as far as we've looked at in in our building of the cube, is pretty powerful and has some really high ceilings and pondering mm-hmm. mage is a great linchpin in that. Not that it is the only way for the deck to come together, but it's a great way to make sure that you are maintaining good draws and able to, you know, stay ahead. I also like to see I like Skull Mulcher and I like Visionary Augmenter as well, uh, kind of early. And Deadly Recluse is also a pretty, pretty solid card, but I don't know that I'd want to take it over a lot of the other stuff that's here.
1: Mm-hmm. It's funny, you actually mentioned a few of my highest picks. I-, I think my pick from this pack would actually be Skull Mulcher. It's a way to really go over the top if you're making a bunch of of creatures which maybe take the skull mulcher try to move into green white hope to wield something like the augmenter or set us tactics mm-hmm. to be honest my next highest pick might be bellowing elk i really like the four power matters deck and bellowing elk really gets there as an amazing attacker this thing as long as you consistently play a creature on your turn is just attacking with four power indestructible and trample for the rest of the game and yeah sure your opponent can shock it you one for one whatever you're ramping anyway who cares it also um I don't know if I'm like legally allowed to pass Elk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I
0: think, I think you are contractually obligated to take them every time you see them. So yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you can pass the Bellowing Elk. The other card that I would also keep in mind here and probably take pretty highly in this pack is Banishing Light. The removal, mm-hmm. and especially unconditional removal, is always good to pick up as early as you can. Um, one of the things that we've talked about in the past about Cube and a lot of other content creators talk about as well is making sure you pick up the things that are less replaceable. So a lot of these mm-hmm. effects, such as, hate to hate to say it, but such as Bellowing Yellowing elk are Ugh. pretty replaceable. You can find another four power creature that yeah, does things. Yeah. Getting unconditional removal can be pretty difficult. So definitely want to capitalize on the removal and the unique effects that you can find.
1: Fair enough. Let's get into our Teferi and for this week. What was up with you this week?
0: Yeah. So uh, if you have listened to the podcast for a couple of weeks or at least uh, last week's episode, you would know that I just started a new job. I transitioned to a new job this week. and this was So this was my first week on the new job. And, uh, honestly couldn't, couldn't really have gone any better so far. I mean, we're recording this on a Wednesday, so I still have half the week to go basically, but it, it's been pretty sweet. The team has been very, very nice. The whole entire company has been very welcoming. Uh, the work is kind of cool and i am slowly ramping up to a project so i I haven't had a whole lot to do this week but i do have some things to do and of course there's always onboarding paperwork and that kind of stuff to do in your first week but it's been it's been a very smooth transition and i've i'm excited to actually get started with my first project there yeah who doesn't
1: love paperwork
0: oh yeah well it's all digital so it's not real paperwork i can just type things out real fast and be done (laughs) lucky you yeah uh my tibble this week though is honestly and i feel weird saying this because we just had christmas and you know that was like uh, i took a week and a half off or whatever, but I'd really like a vacation right now, like <laughs> I I don't know. There's something I guess with a lot of the stress that I I think I briefly mentioned on show a couple of weeks ago with like some family drama yeah. that had been going on. I could really just use some time away from everything and just like un unplug everything. Sit in like a cabin in the middle of the woods, do some hiking. <laughs> you know, just just really be away from life. Um, but having just started a new job, I don't really know when I'll get to do that. Uh, so I guess that's my tibble. I could use a vacation. Not sure when I'll get one.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. How about you? So I've got two tofferies this week. Uh, I actually got to go hiking over the weekend for the first time in ages. Uh, I went with my girlfriend and some of her friends and it was a nice. great time. Um, went on, it was about a nine mile hike. It was a big frozen lake. Uh, but very, very cool. I should have checked the altitude, but you could see pretty much everything in New Jersey. I mean, 95% of New Jersey is just flat.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's not uh, very hard. <laughs> you, you can find got any either, altitude uh, at all. You, you can see the whole thing. Yeah. Story.
1: You've got either like flat, I don't know, marshes or flat pine lands or, or flat other stuff, flat farmlands if you go to the middle. Once you get like a little bit up north more, you you can find some hills, but this is actually a mountain. So it was it was good. A nice long hike. Cool. And there were dogs everywhere. It was a good time. Uh, so my other te- or my other Teferi this week is, well, as it turns out, I was playing some Commander and I got a little bit curb stomped playing one of my old favorites, uh, Bruna, Light of Alabaster. And I realized, you know, it's been a long time since I built this deck. It's time to make some upgrades. So I've been tearing apart my collection, tearing apart this deck, rebuilding it from scratch, and it's been a lot of fun to take a new and more critical and definitely a better magic player's eye and look at why it hasn't been working, and now try to make some improvements so that it does work better.
0: Yeah, the funny thing is, like, just a little aside about that deck, is that that deck is not weak. Like, it's a very powerful deck, <laughs> but it's basically a Bruna Voltron deck, so all people have to do is keep Bruna from hitting the battlefield, and you have a hard time winning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's time for me to... I have a theory that there's two types of commander decks. Uh, commander decks that have to ask permission for things, and commander decks that don't. So, I think any deck can be put into one of those two categories. Some some people like playing commander with with not like th- this deck has always been a you have to ask permission deck um so like i have to kind of eye the table and go hey no one's gonna counter this bruno right and they kind of look at me like mm, we'll see we'll and see then how I many cards nevermore, you got nevermore and i
0: name bruna and you never get past yeah,
1: yes. it again some garbage like that. Um, I've decided it's time to upgrade this deck to the point where uh, where I have a few of my other decks, uh, like Marin of Clan Neltoth I have to this point. Uh, Edgar Markov I have to this point. Decks where uh, I am no longer asking permission. I am simply doing and preventing people from interacting. So yeah. getting this deck, my old my old favorite, my very first commander deck, uh, to that point is a lot
0: of fun. Yeah, that's awesome. This is definitely, uh, that's definitely my playstyle too, is uh, don't ask permission. Just d- basically, it's my my play style is really more just make everybody else ask permission. I don't I don't care about <laughs> yeah. doing my own stuff. I just want everybody to ask me if they can do their own stuff.
1: Yeah, it's time for the uh, the jank fighters to start fighting back. And uh, my, my timbalt this week, uh, I did have another qualifier over the weekend. It went okay. Uh, you were actually there with me as I was, I was playing it. You were watching via stream. And I will say the first three matches were a lot of fun. Uh, I won several games that there was absolutely no way I deserved to win. <laughs> can confirm (laughs) um most notably a a punt in which i used a uh, a pump spell, uh, but I didn't use it to a large enough extent. Uh, it's the the green X spell where you pump a creature of X. What is that? Primal something? Primal, Primal Rage? Primal Might. That's You've only it.
0: played that deck like hundreds of times in the last couple of weeks.
1: Look, I, I, Primal Might's a new card. I don't know what it does. So, <laughs> uh, I, I Primal Mighted, but not for enough. I Primal Mighted enough to kill the creature, not realizing my opponent was tapped out and I could swing for lethal. Uh, so, instead, I then almost punted again by not using Hash Up Oasis to pump my creature to swing for lethal. Uh, and then there was a nerve-wracking like two and a half minutes where my opponent had one black mana up uh, and they could have fatal pushed my thing. And there was just the question of will it happen or will it not? That Those were three very fun games. Uh, the next three subsequent games, I had some pretty poor draws against Jun Sacrifice, uh, which is, you know, one of the best decks in the format. So those didn't go very well. So uh, I'm already, you know, Top 1200 Mythic for, for next month. I'm hoping to do again. Uh, hope hope to run this all back next month with better results.
0: Yeah, and I imagine there will be quite a bit of a shakeup as far as the meta by then. I, I hope Call Time's going to do a little bit there.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm eyeing Blue-White Control in Historic with eager eyes I don't know, Doomscar looks pretty
0: powerful. Yes it does. I'll certainly be letting you know anything you need to know about that deck cuz I guarantee I'll be playing it. For sure. But that brings us to our listener question of the week and in fact this week we have two listener questions. They're kind of similar so we lumped them together. First up, Hululu asks, "How do you put together your pick orders ahead of a set release?" And likewise, Batwheels also asks, "What is our normal prep for a release?" So Ben, do you kind of want to do you want to kick off with what you tend to do on your side of things? I can talk about what I do and then we can maybe talk about what we do together for the show?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, first and uh, most importantly, gotta learn the cards. I'm gonna be pulling up the spoiler, I'm gonna be looking over every single card. I like to make a a special point to read every single line of every single card, including flavor text, because, you know, I I do care about the lore a little bit. Uh, I've been reading the lore for uh, this one so far. Pretty good. Gotta say, I I like it. Kaya, uh, she's pretty great. So, once I've kind of learned every single card, I've read over every single thing that can happen, I start looking at what some of the other people are saying. I mean, I could just go through and try to come up with big ideas all for myself. But right, why bother reinventing the wheel here, right? Uh, that's when it's time to start tuning into some of their favorite content creators, seeing what people are looking at brewing. And then I start taking uh, some of these ideas and looking to see how I can put my own spin on it not just going to say like copy off everybody else that's not really what i'm suggesting but look at some of the other more popular things that people are taking away from this and then start using your own knowledge to compare that with uh your own experience so for example uh we were talking a little bit in our discord this week about how several similar archetypes tend to show up in Limited recently uh there tends to be a cheap red card that lets you rummage discard a card and draw a card there tends to be a blue creature that flashes in and, and uh gives a power debuff. So once uh, we've kind of taken a look at what people are saying about the set, start using that to tune into your own knowledge. Think like how good was the blue creature that uh, debuffs power in the last set, and the set before that. Were those first picks? Were those medium picks? Uh, where about did those fall? And then start looking at these new cards and trying to relate them to the older cards and seeing where they seem to line up. Now, obviously the best part of a new set is new card designs, right? Seeing new things, maybe abilities we've never seen before or creatures with new stats, that kind of thing. So those ones can be tougher to evaluate, but pretty much for any card you can find some sort of baseline to compare it to, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great suggestion there. I tend to do something similar. I will pay... Honestly, I I tend to pay medium attention, or mild attention, I'll say, to the spoilers. I'll look at a lot of the stuff that people are flaunting, or like a lot of the rares and mythics, which is funny because being a primarily limited player, I don't really care about the rares and mythics all that much from a limited perspective, but yeah, they I I care a lot about them from a commander perspective because that's the other format that I like to play a lot, so Mm -hmm. I'll look at different things that pique my interest from a commander perspective, and then once the whole sets out, because they tend to release the last few commons like at the tail end of the format and or the tail end of, of the like spoiler season, and that's fine, and you can usually gauge the speed or the feel of a format a bit before you see all the commons, but I usually don't do any limited prep or work on pick orders or anything like that until I get the whole spoiler, and then I'll do, similar to how Ben said, I'll sit down with the whole spoiler, I'll read through the cards, really try to familiarize myself with the commons and uncommons, and then just get a, a general idea. I don't think I read every line of text, but I'll get a general idea of which rares to look out for, and then really pay attention to the commons and uncommons. I don't generally write up an entire pick order for the whole set. I just don't typically have time to do that. So I will rely on other other folks pick orders, uh, the limited level ups folks and the Lords of Limited tend to release 17 lands pick orders that I'll kind of comb through and just gauge, but I I do have to go through the set myself first, give myself an idea of like okay, this card's probably a CC plus type thing in my head and not really care about putting that on paper too much and then Mm -hmm. once I have an idea in my head, I'll go through other people's pick orders and see like, oh wow, we really differed on that or, you know, okay I've got, we all have the same idea with this. Not saying who has the right idea necessarily when we do disagree, but That's something to keep in mind. And then I also like to look at what are people saying as like their top commons and uncommon's because that's something to look out for when you're drafting. If there is like a front runner at the beginning of a format for like best archetype, I like to look out for that because you can typically use that to your that knowledge to your advantage when you're drafting. You can expect that color pair or that archetype to maybe get cut earlier or something. So it can help you kind of be a, be aware of your surroundings a bit more in the draft portion. As far as normal prep for like a release outside of pick orders, um we tend to really look into the mechanics as we do a mechanics show for the show. And then of course we do our format breakdown so we look a lot at the signpost uncommons, and then try to figure out what the archetypes are doing with those and without those and really gauge what cards you're expecting to see in like the good versions of all these archetypal decks.
1: Mm-hmm. I do want to shout out the limited resources uh, the, the full set reviews those things are absolutely mandatory listening if you want to try to get a good leg up on the format even if you just go and, uh, if if that's the only limited resources episodes you listen to which it shouldn't be. Other content is great. Even if those are the only ones you happen to listen to, even that will get you so far ahead of people in the format that haven't started considering these things yet. Just the ability to bounce ideas off of other Magic players and see, oh, what do you think of this thing? What do you think of this thing? And then to have a discussion about it. Yeah, I would say pick orders are kind of de-emphasized. You can have a pick order, but as we like to say, everything's contextual. There's no real, uh, ever true pick order. Not unless you have like truly absurd things and maybe the top five and you can go back and forth about what the bombiest bomb is going to be like i don't know dream trawler or, or something like that but besides that uh, it's good to start you know talking about the different corner cases and situations that are going to come up something i like to do is think about how these games are going to play out and maybe if you want to get a little bit of practice with that you can always go in and fire a draft sim uh shout out to draft sim for the, as of right now they're uh, they've got caldheim up so right now if you wanted to you could go and fire a practice draft and then maybe uh Goldfish a few games, play against an invisible opponent, see if you can, you know, put together some of the the neat combos or get the synergies to go online. And maybe before playing against anyone else, see if it actually works.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate the, the ability to draft without any resources on the line with draft sim before a set comes out. I like to run maybe a half dozen draft sims at least before I draft the set for real. Uh, that gives me, especially because I'm a visual learner, I like to see the cards in context in the packs. We were just talking about this before the show too, with with the draft draft cube. We spent hours mm. and hours and hours building the cube, but then I see the cards in the pack for the first time, and I'm like, wait a second, this just it just feels very different. The context has shifted. It's not on a spreadsheet or not in a cube cobra layout. Like the cards are with other yeah. cards, and trying to evaluate which one of those you would like to take over all the other ones uh, is something that doesn't really come up until you see the cards in the packs for me, at least. So Mm -hmm. I love to run draft sims and get an idea of what the packs will actually look like when they're open.
1: All right, so let's get into the main topic for today. We're going to talk about some Caldheim Mechanics. So Caldheim is shaping up to be a pretty interesting set. Lots of eye-catching cards spoiled so far, right? So today we're going to take a look at some of the main mechanics from Caldheim. Some old ones, some new ones, and we're going to give our impressions on each. So you want to kick us off with the old stuff?
0: Yeah, sure. So the first quote-unquote old, I'll call it old because we've seen it in another set, but it's still relatively new. That is the modal double-faced cards, or MDFCs as we've all come to call them. These are flip cards that are one card on one side and a completely different card on the other side, and you can choose to play either or when you cast it. In this set, they are mostly rares and mythics that are legendary gods on one side, and then either an artifact, or a creature, or an enchantment, or a planeswalker on the other side. Like ZNR, and like we've seen with with the modal DFC so far, you choose which side to play it as. You don't get to change that after it's been cast, you just choose it when you're casting the card. And in my opinion, the MDFCs were a really great addition to ZNR and magic as a game. Just overall, I think MDFCs were great. They had more decision points to make. And also, given that the first round of them were all lands, it was really interesting to see um, you know, how that fixed the like potential mana problems that a deck could have in Magic. That's kind of one of the big drawbacks, in my opinion, of Magic as a game is the resource mm-hmm. issue. Um, I'm excited to see how the community ends up rating these now that they're not lands. Uh, we do have the, the other cycle of, of the dual rares, uh, but most of them are not lands. And so the, even though they're not all lands, they still, you know, they, they don't really have the I don't know the the how many lands am I supposed to play dilemma that ZNR had because I think that was a big question a lot of players had early on in the format with the modal DFCs being lands a lot of people either got the wrong idea that you should be like cutting a bunch of lands to play them or you know it it brought up a lot of questions but now that they're both spells on on the same card I think that's going to change that a bit we won't really have that dilemma as much and I'm just curious to see how many of these are actually going to make make you know, make the cut in the average deck because a lot of them are rares and mythics, but there are some uncommon ones, I believe. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how many of them are actually worth playing. In a mm.
1: I don't know if there are any uncommons. I don't think I've ever seen any spoiled, but I haven't actually gotten a chance to see the full spoiled now that it's out. Uh, you, you do make a good point about the, uh, how there's no longer, you know, land on one side, spell on the other, and how this is not going to really impact the deck building as much. If we get into construct it a little bit, there are people worried once we heard that there are going to be more flipped uh, cards in Caldheim that people were going to be playing these absurd like 40 mana source, but also 40 non-land card decks that are just monstrosities of of deck building nonsense. Thankfully, it looks like we're going to be avoiding that. I actually really like the way these play out. Uh, i really liked these in in general in in Zendikar Rising, especially Limited. So, you know, uh, I I think I did predict this a few episodes ago that we might see uh, instead of land on one side, non-land on the other, we'd see like creature on one side, spell of some kind on the other. Pretty sure I predicted this one. I do also like that it's uh, you know a, a nice workaround for the whole legendary thing so you could for example jam four gods like for the same god into a deck and not really have to worry too much about the legend rule because well if you've got the god creature out you just play the other half and it's not a dead card in your hand i also like a uh, from a flavor perspective the gods of you know norse mythology they were clever they were crafty they'd come and live among the mortals and and do weird things and be like oh look at me i'm in disguise the whole time so it's kind of neat that uh They get to be these, I guess, more creature-esque gods but that still have these cool otherworldly properties. Uh, We're probably not going to be seeing any, you know, like 10 DFC decks anymore like we did in Zendikar Rising because people were rating those wrong. I think everyone's kind of figured out. DFCs tend to be pretty good. I'm going to take them pretty highly. So let's talk about a quick example here. We've got Torolf, God of Fury. This is two red red for a five for a legendary creature. It's a god. He has trample. Whenever a creature or planeswalker an opponent controls is dealt excess, Non combat damage, Torov deals damage equal to the excess to any target other than that permanent. Pooh boy. <laughs> What is happening here? So this is uh, this is Thor, and it looks like he's got lightning pretty well under control. So if I bolt a 1-1, deal 3 damage to a 1-1 creature, that 2 damage, I get to turn somewhere else. I can turn it to my opponent's face, I can turn it to another 1-1, and then that damage would spill over to another 1-1. This pretty much guarantees you're getting max value out of your burn spells at all times.
0: Yeah, it's a really nice way to get around the dilemma of like, I only have a lightning bolt in hand, but there's a 2-2 on the board with an effect that's really pesky that I need to get rid of, or mm-hmm. You know bolting the bird is going to get a lot a lot more uh, fun <laughs> yeah. this is also interesting from a design perspective because it reminds me very well of like the scenes in the Thor movies where he like tosses his hammer and it just piles through like a bunch of different enemies you know it just plows yeah. right through people this yeah, has it's like a, it's
1: feel. a lightning yeah it's like an arc lightning chain reaction effect it's sweet yeah. from a flavor perspective now on the back of Torolf we've got Torolf's hammer this is wonder red for a legendary artifact equipment equipped creature has pay one one and a red, tap it, Unattached Torolf's Hammer. Get it? It's throwing it. Sweet. It deals three damage to any target. Return Torolf's Hammer to its owner's hand. And then the equipped creature gets plus three, plus oh, as long as it's legendary, and it has equipped for one and a red. So naturally, Torolf wants to carry Torolf's Hammer. Then it starts attacking as an eight four that can uh, use this as a source of non- combat damage to start pinging random things and uh chain reaction everything all all across the board and something very cool is that it returns twirls hammer to your hand so if you play this early and limited and you've only got one you wouldn't have to worry about legend ruling yourself you can play this early and then just replay it as Torolf if you want instead
0: yeah, it's it's an interesting effect. I'm a, I was a little surprised that they force you to return it to your hand. I would have liked to see maybe maybe it was too powerful in playtesting, but I would have liked to see like you may return it to your hand because it, it already unattaches itself, so you have the the equip cost is already something you need to bring back into the equation. You can't just yeah. put this like like you still need to put it back on something and then bouncing it to your hand just makes it cost twice as much if you wanted to replay the hammer in the first place. So I I don't know if I quite like that it that it forces you to bounce it to your hand, but it is an interesting card and I really like the design of the gods so far. So one thing we can say here, which I guess kind of plays into the mechanics is that all the gods are flip cards in mm-hmm. the set. There there isn't they're all they're all the the MDFCs. What I really like and something that we were kind of talking about when we did our first impressions in the the format for was for ZNR was that these gods don't have indestructible which is really cool yeah. because from a Norse mythology perspective like they weren't really gods they're just otherworldly beings that seem like gods to humans because they're they're so powerful mm. which is which is great i think that's really awesome from a flavor perspective
1: next up in our old mechanics we've got sagas oh they're back i always love sagas uh, the fixed planeswalkers if you will <laughs> so for those that don't know sagas are enchantments they enter the battlefield you get a lore counter when they enter the battlefield another is placed on them after each of your draws steps. Notably, not your upkeep. This sometimes ends up mattering, although it is a little clunky from a rules perspective. Uh, After the last uh, counter is placed on the saga, the saga is sacrificed. And uh, there's a line of Roman numerals along the side that says what to do when you place each lore counter. These are sweet. I'm yeah. always happy to have sagas, and they can often be some of the best cards in their limited environment. I mean, when we first got these in Dominaria, I just remember Time of Ice was such a beating in that format, along with all the other sweet ones like Mirari, Conjecture. Uh, and now we've even got newer ones from Theros, like Elspeth Conquers Death. Uh, and uh, th- these have seen you know a significant amount of standard play, and they were also all pretty great in limited.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Even the ones that like, that are weak and didn't make it in Constructed tend to be pretty solid and limited, at, at least from you know, the last couple of sets we've seen with this. I really appreciate seeing that Sagas are more evergreen these days. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan of them. One of my favorite card types in Magic. Kind of like you said, they are sort of the fixed Planeswalker because they are temporary cards. They're permanents that stick around for a little bit, then they go away, but they do some pretty good things on, on the way. Um, mm-hmm. Generally, they're pretty impactful without being game-breaking, which is really good to see. And the flavor of them here on time is really cool with the way that they're portrayed artistically i know it's something that you were really excited to see with them the way that they're oh like, yeah would they like some of the art for these was done physically by artists who are carving wood and they like took a picture of the car like the wood carvings and put on it's like, so, that's sick. so awesome and yeah, it fits the uh, Norse theme so well it's like you know mm-hmm. the, the way that they tell i love that they because the original idea with sagas and dominaria was that's how the people of dominaria would tell their history or their their plane's history was through yeah was through the sagas or at least from a card representation that's how we they wizards was trying to portray those cards yeah the the fall
1: the thran whatnot uh
0: it's really cool to see these things kind of evolve with the set that they're coming into because this makes sense we see like a couple of the art uh art styles for these sagas are tattoos right and it's really cool like this is how these people would tell these stories they would they would carve things or make you know fashion things out of materials they had available or they would you know mark themselves with it like it's just a very very cool little flavor bump um and we've seen some pretty interesting effects on these we have an example that we'll get to in a moment and i'm extremely curious to see where they all fall in the grand scheme of the format because like i said a lot of the weaker ones that don't see constructed play still tend to be good in limited but i'm curious to see and it's pretty easy to, to pick out the ones that are like oh that's a bomb but i'm curious where some of the weaker ones yeah. fall in the limited format
1: yeah we're starting to see some repeated trends among the sagas uh cheap ones tend to have some sort of uh, deck manipulation effect maybe milling something or maybe scrying a little bit and then the more expensive ones uh we're actually seeing a lot of graveyard interaction from them especially in this set but potentially reanimating or doing something like that the one we wanted to talk about was actually furges retribution this is my favorite one so far and honestly one of my favorite cards in the set so this is one white white black kind of interesting they have the asymmetrical casting costs brought back in uh, in this set i noticed that on some of the other cards as well so create a four four white angel warrior creature token with flying and vigilance for the first chapter so already you got a four mana uh sarah angel great love it yeah second chapter we've got until end of turn angels you control gain tap destroy target creature with power less than this creature's power so if they don't find a way to deal with that angel you're just getting a a free two for one off this thing it's just going to snipe one of their creatures and chapter three attack (laughs) And it still gets to it. Well, Because eh. it has vengeance, oh, So I can attack first. Oh, and yeah, And then it yeah. can tap
0: and, and blow up their one of their creatures.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's sick. And then finally, Chapter 3, Angels you control gain Double Strike until end of term. I don't know. If you hit them with an Angel once, they're at 16. You hit this thing with Double Strike. Uh, They, they take another 8 off that. This is a very efficient way to kill a player unlimited, just from this one card alone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's I expect just, to see uh, the nice little Yeah.
1: Yeah. So what have we got next? What's our next, Uh, well, our first new mechanic?
0: Yeah, so our first well, is it though? <laughs> this, is, yeah. this is kind of kind of an old mechanic, uh, but it's new for probably like eighty five to ninety plus percent of the player base at this point. Um, that is snow. Yes, snow is a mechanic in Magic, which is one we have not seen for quite some time in a regular set. Uh, Modern Horizons brought it back briefly, but we haven't seen mm-hmm. it in a in a in a prime you know standard legal set for quite some time. Like uh, Ice Age cold yeah, snap yeah. It's, been, them, it's been it's right? been a very very long time um but essentially snow cards have in this set they have a special alternate border which is pretty cool they often involve what is called snow mana or snow permanence and we have as part of the set what they call snow lands which appear as both basics uh in the set, there's every every pack I believe in the set has a snow basic, which is, you know, just a traditional mountain, plains, island forest, swamp, but they, they're snow mountain or snow plains or whatever and they count as snow permanents. And when they I think tapped, they can
1: actually huh? uh, I think those can actually be replaced by the tapped cycle of snow duels. Oh true. Uh, yeah. So- yeah. I think you're guaranteed one snow land per pack but yeah yes. like you were saying when you when you tap uh, a snow land it makes mana still but it's snow mana yeah
0: and it's not it's not like it's a, a new weird like sixth type of mana um, it is still, you know, a snow mountain still taps for red, but it is snow red, which will matter in a yeah. couple of different ways, uh, which you'll see on some of the cards of even paying attention to spoilers. Um, and we'll get into a particular card that cares about snow permanence in a moment. But of course, as Ben alluded to there, there is a cycle of basic dual lands. i sorry. Yes, well... <laughs> Yes, they are basic <laughs> dual lands, but they're at common. They enter the battlefield tapped, and they don't do anything else. They're just they're just dual lands, but they are snow lands, and they have both basic land types of whatever colors they are. So you know the Demir one is is an island and a swamp and a snow permanent. Very weird, and it's at common. Yeah, very, very they see seem.
1: It. uh It's probably for the best they enter the battlefield tapped. is like a hard stop to any kind of nonsense that could be done with these. So any effect that says put a forest into play or go search your library for a forest, you can. Use. Uh, yep. Notably, you can't search for them with say an evolving wilds or something but uh i like many other magic players have not played with standard legal snow stuff before uh i think i've played maybe one or two modern horizons drafts and there was snow in that but that was different and the snow that came before this was a little before our time i think so uh you can think of snow as kind of an overlay mechanic. It, it kind of drapes over these normal cards. Uh, well, c- kind of similarly to how when I woke up this morning, I found my car covered in an inch of snow that I didn't expect, and I was almost late for work. It, it just kind of goes over things when you least expect it. So sometimes creatures will have activated abilities that can only be activated with snow mana. That seems to be a common thing in this set. Uh, and maybe sometimes uh, cards care about snow mana in other ways. Maybe you have to control a certain number of snow permanents that, that do a certain number of things, or, or, you know, you get the idea.
0: Yeah, so our, our example card here is Yorn, God of Winter, which is a funny name for a green card, but here we are. Oh, uh,
1: uh, it's the
0: it's Snow. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's, uh, it's two and a green for a three, three legendary snow creature God at rare. And it says, whenever aren't attacks, untap each snow permanent you control. So that includes lands, that includes non-lands. It's just all snow permanents. Hmm. And of course, includes it's... Them. It includes him as well, yes. Uh, and, of course, this is a flip card, so we have something on the back side. And this is interesting because this card is actually a three-color card in essence. Uh, the back side of Yorn, God of Winter, is Cauldron the Rhyme Staff, which is one blue-black for a legendary snow artifact, which says, Tap you may play Target Snow Permanent card from your graveyard this turn. If you do, it enters the battlefield tapped. Wow.
1: This card is snow joke. Oh gosh, you're a joke.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is interesting. I mean, it's it's nice to see snow back for for the first time in a while and I like that they are open to bringing it back it has some weird implications with the way that that other cards interact with snow permanence and we have this dilemma now in like the constructed formats of today as to whether or not you should be playing snow basics which is like a whole different conversation um i'm a little disappointed we haven't really seen that snow trump card that everybody was hoping for but in limited there should be enough of that to work with or at least if if they've spoiled the uh a a snow a big like a big snow trump card i haven't seen it um
1: there is Okay. Um, Redain God of the Worthy. So she's two and a white for a 2-3 Flying Vigilance. Again, a Legendary God and a flip card. Uh, Snowlands, your opponent's control, enter the battlefield tapped.
0: Oh, I have so seen that's, that. I have seen that. That's uh, already
1: pretty good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then non-creature spells, your opponent's cast with converted mana, cost four or greater, costs two more to cast. And the back has some nonsense about preventing damage or, or something like that. So uh, do you think the mere presence of this card is going to be enough to prevent people from just... You know, playing all Snowlands for that, uh, I guess, uh, information value as we were talking about it.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I haven't really put a whole lot of thought into the constructed side of things. It's certainly not going to matter in Limited very much, mm-hmm. being being at least a rare, right? Is that a rare or mythic?
1: Yeah, it's a rare, yeah.
0: Yeah, okay, so it'll come up, but it's not going to come up that often, and you still have to draft the Snowlands, In in Mm. limited, you don't just get to substitute them into your deck for normal basics. So we don't really have that dilemma here. I'm not sure what'll happen with constructed, but you know, here's hoping, I guess. Um, But Outside of that, the synergies that this extra kind of weird pseudo overlay subtype, as Ben was calling it, allows like this cool flavor perspective, as well as a new cool gameplay perspective that there's just an extra layer of things to work with. And I think that'll be interesting. It'll make for some weird kind of out of nowhere archetypes I'm expecting, but I'm excited to see how it plays out.
1: Also, I'm not sure what what animals those are on uh, Yorn God of Winter, but they are really cute.
0: Yeah, like snow weasels or something.
1: Yeah, Magali, uh, you did it again. Well done. Next up for our new mechanics, we've got Boast. So this one is a new primarily red, but it shows up in a bunch of other colors too. Uh, Keyword mechanic that is an activated ability. So it reads, well, there's some kind of cost and then activate this only if this creature attacked this turn and only once this turn. So notably this can be activated immediately after declaring attackers, uh, like say maybe tapping down a blocker with the ability. You can use it before and after uh, blocks, before and after damage. You can even use it in your second main and even use it during your end step. Uh, However, this is only ever happening on your turn so it's naturally a pretty aggressive mechanic this seems like one of the more i want to say lesser mechanics in the set uh, it doesn't seem to have as much support it's not staple to every rare like the the idea of flip cards is and it's maybe not quite as exciting as the one we're getting to that everyone has, i'm sure has already seen coming I guess you could say they've foretold what we're coming to next. But this seems like a very limited mechanic. Um, I guess in all senses of the word, it's limited to only doing it on your turn. And I think it's purely going to only see limited play. But uh, I mean, it's going to be important for us, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because this is is a, a type of archetype or sorry a type of mechanic that doesn't need to be built around at all you just need to be able to attack Mm -hmm. with your creatures that have this effect and uh, notably you only get to activate boast effects if the creature with boast attacked you don't get to attack with something else and still get to use the boast but i like the way that it's templated because what it does is it allows you to throw you know maybe a one one that has boast but might draw you a card or give you some other incidental effect into blockers that you know you're going to lose your creature but because of the way that the effect is templated you still get that extra effect. Effect, which I think is really mm-hmm. cool uh- I don't know how frequently you're going to want to do that. You know, you probably just want a chump blocker, but um yeah some of these effects, like the, the example card we have here, are are decent. Um the, and, and our example is Tuscary Firewalker. This is two and a red for a creature, Human Berserker at Common. It's a 3-2, and it says, Boast, one mana, exile the top card of your library. You may play that card this turn. And so what that means is, again, whenever Tuskeri Firewalker attacks, for the rest of the turn, you have the ability to pay one and exile the top card of your library and then play that card. Of course, if the creature dies, you're going to have to do it in response. If you lose the creature, you're not going to be able to use that effect, but yeah, I don't know. I I think it's interesting, and I like it because it's an effect that, it's a mechanic that you don't have to build around. You can throw both creatures in your deck without any care about how many you have, or what they, it's very, it's a very siloed mechanic, which I think is Mm -hmm. why you're saying it's kind of limited, like there's no, you know, weird blowout synergy potential there are cards that reduce the cost of your boast effects i think i think there's a rare that does that but you know you're not like like the foretell deck which we're going to get into in a little in a bit here that mechanic really requires you to have some well some forethought and like <laughs> the ability to like kind of build your deck to make take advantage of foretell the snow permanence thing like really cares about having like critical mass of snow and I guess the sagas and the flip cards don't really care those aren't really like build around mechanics either but I don't know it's nice to have this one little mechanic that's not game breaking and is you know generally just fine and this is also one I could see them printing in another set you know down the line
1: yeah I agree it has a nice flavor perspective too I mean they're vikings they're charging in a battle and I, I do really think it hits flavor right on the head uh, the moment they get in the battle they're like look at me look what I'm doing and then they're gonna talk about it for the rest of the turn right um and it's an interesting mechanic it's probably fine there's some of these that make tokens the there's a black one that rare that tutors your library which that one's kind of interesting uh there's a red one that makes a, a dragon it's like a five five or a four four or some big flyer it, like i said i'm sure it's gonna be Pretty decent. Um, I have a funny feeling we're only really going to see these cards unlimited, but it means we get to enjoy it more than the constructed players do.
0: Yeah. So that brings us to our last of the new mechanics here, and it's foretell. And this this is a mechanic that I quite like. Um, basically, it's. It's a, a new keyword mechanic that reads, during your turn, you may pay two generic mana and exile this card from your hand, face it down. You cast it on a later turn for its foretell cost. And then the foretell mm. cost and the exile cost tends to be kind of like either a bad rate or right on par, like... A lot of times the foretell cost and the the actual exile cost to foretell cost the same as the card, just straight up. But what it does is it lets you split that mana over multiple turns. So if, you know, the one the one big example that everybody's, like, pretty excited about is the the new card Doomscar, which is three white, white, destroy all creatures. So it's a five mana Wrath of God, but you can foretell it, and that means you can pay two mana on one turn and then cast it again or, or cast it from i guess exile for one white white so it's a three mana board wipe if you if you do the foretell thing so you still spend a total of five mana but you get to do it over three turns which means you can cast it as early as turn 3 which is pretty pretty wild yeah this- so this is
1: a very interesting mechanic to an uh, to you know dig into and because upon seeing this a lot of people will say well it's just the same or you're splitting up the cost over a few turns or you're paying more mana for it in the end why is this good well if you're paying more mana they they usually seem to have an upside um or if they're at least on par this allows you to do some very interesting things. Uh, Putting this kind of initial sync while also keeping the card secret, which is not irrelevant, is going to lead to some very weird gameplay strategies in Limited. Uh, I I have a a very strange theory about this. Uh, It's super unique. We haven't played with face-down cards in ages, right? And uh, as a lover of all things involving bluffs and mind games and nonsense, I'm pretty sad I don't get to try these out in person. But uh, the biggest impact I think these are going to have is on turn two. So I think turn two in this format is going to be a very important term so i think some decks will be playing two drops uh load of the ground threats like the the black white like cast two spells in a turn deck uh other decks like maybe blue white or the the blue decks might be foretelling and there's lots of combat tricks that have foretell in all the colors. So this means that on turn two, if you're foretelling something, you are not adding to the board. So my question, will the foretell cards uh, coming in a turn ahead of schedule make up for taking a whole turn off? So if you're on the draw, for example, and your opponent plays a two drop and a three drop, and uh, you just spent like two mana to do nothing uh, foretelling a card that's not coming down again until turn four or five, you might feel pretty worried, right? Your opponent has built out a significant Board, well, you haven't affected the board at all. So, notably, a lot of combat tricks and instant speed effects can be foretold. So, I wonder how often you'll want to say wait until after you attack, uh, uh, to, to you know, wait. Wait to like have one big attack uh, until you can foretell all your tricks and then swing in with like several tricks available and plenty of mana open.
0: Yeah, it's it's going to be an interesting puzzle to solve, and I think that's one of one of the reasons why I like this mechanic so much. Given that it doesn't reveal any information, you exile the cards face down, so your opponent has to be kind of on their toes figuring out which cards you could foretell. They all have that same two generic mana costs, so you're not going to get any hints mm-hmm. there. Uh, of course, their the actual foretell cost generally has some color. Mana in it, so you know you can you can deduce a few things that way. One thing I'll say, it feels a bit like Morph because Morph was basically the last mechanic we've seen that gave like upside down you know face down kind of hidden information like this Mm -hmm. but i actually think it's it's kind of the opposite when it comes to gameplay these cards don't impact the board like you said ben when you foretell them whereas morph cards gave you a creature that actually sat on the board and did something but those creatures could also be interacted with they could be destroyed they could be exiled they could be any number of things these foretold Mm -hmm. cards can't be discarded because they're not in your hand and they can't be removed any other way because they're in exile unless you know somehow somebody's playing eldrazi processors but that's not happening in limited. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah, so I think I think that's interesting, and it's going to play out a lot different than than morph. I think a lot of people originally were like, "Hey, these are these are like morph," but I really don't think it's going to play out that way. And I think to to say a little bit about what you were talking about there with with the speed of the format, I think I think it's hard to say, but I think a lot of times these are going to end up being cards that you want to cast for their main cost, but would I, maybe maybe it's going to it's going to be different depending on the actual foretell card. Our, our example card here outside of the Doomscar is uh, Vengeful Reaper. It's 3 and a black for 2-3 with Flying, Death Touch, and Haste. But then it has Foretell for 1 and a black. So still costs you know a total of 3 black three and a black. But you could get it out on turn 3 if you wanted to. This one's kind of awkward because unless you had a 1-drop in hand, you don't really want to be doing that on turn 3. Yeah. Um, but I think it's really going to depend on the card itself because I'm speculating that a lot of these Fortell cards are going to be cards that you play on turns where you don't have anything else to do with your mana. And so you'll play on five you'll play a three drop and then foretell something Mm -hmm. and then your next turn you have another three drop and you can cast the foretold card for three or whatever you know something like that instead of taking turn two off i think a lot of these cards you're going to be playing later in the game but we'll see how it goes i mean some of them really want to be out just sitting in exile as early as possible so that you can take advantage of them faster i think if the if the format's even remotely aggressive or supports an aggressive deck you're probably going to want to wait to foretell your cards until you have extra mana to use
1: yeah i'm just trying to think about how these are are going to play out physically on each turn. I think that's an important thing to do as you're preparing for new format, right? So you can't just go like, Foretell on turn two, foretell on turn three, foretell on turn four, no, and then flip not. over. Like, a yeah, this you're just not going to be affected on the board in a significant enough way. Even if you're getting these cost reductions, doesn't matter if you can cast like a five five for two mana if you're dead, right?
0: Right, yeah, yeah. I think, I think taking turns off to use them is probably not the way you want to go about it. I think using them. In turns, we have other stuff to do. And it might be an interesting way to get that double spell effect that we were talking about with Black-White, where, yeah. like I said, on turn two, maybe you have a two-drop in hand and you foretold something, or you can foretell something, so you play a two-drop and foretell something. And the next turn, you can play a three-drop and cast the foretold card or a two-drop and cast a foretold card or something like that. It's going to help with the double spelling, but it's going to make sequencing mm-hmm. interesting. I, I think the sequencing puzzle in this format is going to be a little bit more taxing than we're used to. So I'd just
1: like to note that we've had Vampire Nighthawk which is the the old one, one black black for a 2-3 uh, vampire flying uh, death-touch lifelink. We then had vampire uh, bright hawk, which was one white white for a dwarf artificer, I believe. That was a 2-3 flying vigilance lifelink. Aerial we then had... I
0: think is the one that was called.
1: Yep. We then had... Uh, Vampire Night Walk, which was gifted Aetherborn that was black black for a two-three death touch lifelink. And I would like to introduce uh Vengeful Reaper as Vampire foresight walk uh now as a 2-3 with flying death touch and haste uh let it be known i'm i'm coming up with that one right now not we're running out of rhymes though i will say
0: (laughs) yeah i thought you were gonna do something more angel related with this one but
1: okay i I get it look it's it's foretelling it's foresight walk plus we're seriously starting to run out of rhymes (laughs)
0: yeah but, but that, that about does it for all of our main mechanics. We do have a couple of honorable mentions here, Ben, that you wanted to uh, go over. So so what else did we have to cover here?
1: Yeah, believe it or not, this set is jam-packed with even more stuff. So we've got Tribal. Uh, we've got Shapeshifters back in the set. And it looks like they're primarily in blue and green. Uh, that archetype is also more snow-based. These, cha- or these uh, creatures all have uh, an effect called Changeling. So it means that they are every creature type. So uh, a Shapeshifter that has Changeling is a coward. And it's also a god and it's also an eldrazi ally angel warrior Uh, it has everything so Sometimes you might find that this plays in very strange ways. Uh, a buff that, you know, only uh, affects cowards will uh, also uh, affect all of your, you know, warriors. It also affects all this other stuff. So um, then again, debuffs that only hit certain things will also apply. So uh, we've also got, those that remember living weapon, uh, this was quite a while ago. This These were equipment that would come in uh, attached to a zero zero germ token. We got something that's kind of like that. Uh, but not really. So there's an uncommon cycle of equipment that let you pay a, an additional cost as they enter the battlefield. And if you do, it creates a token that that equipment then attaches to. So uh, the white one, let's see, I believe it creates an angel. Uh, the blue one makes a giant. The black one makes a zombie. Red one makes a dwarf. And green one makes an elf. So uh, these are just something to keep an eye out for. Uh, these are going to depend on the rate and also the re-equip cost. I think it's best to evaluate these as their, uh, as their full uh, price So for example, like a format of four, four, if if that's what you wind up getting from this total that like dies and leaves behind like a, an equipment that gives plus one, plus one, even at a steep equip cost. That's a great card. Uh, I haven't looked at all these too closely at the full spoiler yet. As of the time of release, I will have, I promise. Don't worry. I know what I'm talking about. So it's going to depend on how well that, that rate ends up being. We don't want to be overpaying for this stuff though.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, also just to, backtrack a slight bit um, real quick just to kind of bring up the tribal thing. We were talking about shapeshifters, but the tribes that are really worth talking about here are mm, yeah. elves, angels, giants, the gods, I guess. I don't know if you can consider them a whole tribe, but uh, yeah, am sure. I missing anything?
1: Uh, dwarves seem dwarves. to be showing up, and then yeah, I and, then, think and that, of course that. the shapeshifters. Yeah. So uh, almost last, we've got legendary uncommons again. So we actually have a whole cycle of dual-colored uncommon legends, uh, as well as the sagas so that we actually have two pairs of of, we have a pair of signposts for each color pair uh these seem to kind of resemble what happened in Theros beyond death and dominaria the way that those played out we had sagas in those we had these double colored uh uncommon legends those sets are both a lot of fun i think this bodes pretty well for Kalheim. and uh last but not least vehicles i guess are are these just evergreen now like we seem to get one or two percent
0: yeah honestly i think it's I think it's totally fine for that to be the case. It was kind of weird that, you know, before they, they instituted vehicles as a card type, I we had some artifacts that kind of felt like they should have been vehicles, but were just normal artifacts. So yeah. I, I like that they're just throwing these in whenever a set deems there should be, vehi- like there should be, from a story perspective, things that act like vehicles. Uh, so mm. I, I don't really see a reason for them not to evergreen vehicles uh, from set design. I think I think mm. it works.
1: And one last little note here. Uh, just as kind of like a... This is just something I'm looking forward to doing in this set. There is like this hidden five-colored deck uh, that that seems like it's going to be a lot of fun that is kind of a combination of all these mechanics. So I think the way you get into that is if you happen to open Aseeka, God of the Tree, or um, the Uncommon that does something very similar. It's like the... I guess it's like the Bifrost Uncommon, uh, the Path to the World Tree. And then you can combine that with a bunch of other... It seems to be base green, uh, the way to get into this. Um, There's a card that has... that lets you uh, search for basic land so you can start like grabbing a bunch of stuff like that. And then, I don't know, just the, the idea of a five-color archetype is always a lot of fun, especially when it actually sees support. Notably, we have the world tree, which why on earth is that not legendary. I, I don't get it. Doesn't it doesn't
0: make any sense.
1: Yeah. No. Uh, The fact that it's it's the world tree, like, come on, it's supposed to be a legend. But anyway, uh, it enters the battlefield tap. You can tap to add green mana. As long as you control six or more lands, lands you control have tap, add one mana of any color, and then you can pay double Wooburg, so 10 whole mana, two of each color, sacrifice it, and then search your library for any number of gods, put them onto the battlefield. Uh, Oh, we're talking about this. I just wanted to shout out this thing I'm excited to try. If you combine that with Maskwood Nexus, which is a four drop artifact that says creatures you control are every creature type and then some other nonsense about making changelings, uh, that's a two card combo. That lets you get every single creature in your deck and put it onto the battlefield.
0: Yes, it does. Good luck putting that together in Limited, but...
1: Oh, I'm gonna... Don't even... Don't even say that.
0: I have absolutely going to do it. (laughs) By the end of the format, I I firmly believe that you will have done it, yes. But that about does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you got a little bit out of this and learned a bit more about the mechanics for Call Time. Next week, we'll be back at you with the entire format breakdown for Caldheim. We'll go through every two-color combination and probably honorable mentions on some of these other archetypes, like this five-color one that is probably not a real deck, but is is hidden there. We'll let you know next week. But in the meantime, if you want to talk with us or anybody else in our community, check out the Discord. The link to that is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. And of course, if you're interested in giving back to the show or otherwise supporting us, check out our Patreon on patreon.com forward slash draftchaffpod. You can reach out to us on social media by going to twitter and checking my page out at rannick alfredian or ben's page at betafish one and you can get to the podcast uh, at draft pod on twitter as well if you want to email us you can do so at draft pod at gmail.com and we'll see you next week
1: later everybody so for this sign off this week we gotta talk a little bit of tv so some students were talking to me today well, hold, on, about hold on hold on hold on
0: spoiler alert okay there's not a whole lot to spoil but just in case you are interested in seeing WandaVision and you haven't already we're gonna be talking about WandaVision probably just stop listening now
1: well here's the thing I also haven't seen it so I don't want spoilers either that's true That's true.
0: (laughs) I forgot about that you told me that at the beginning of the show I forgot
1: well yeah this is the weird thing so uh, Disney has been on this kick of putting out a bunch of uh, content with a capital C it's almost like more shows that you could ever handle a bunch of Star Wars shows are in the works a bunch of Marvel shows are in the works and some of these historically been pretty good mandalorian fantastic some of the old marvel shows fantastic but i don't know something about they just announced so much stuff and they happened to announce it all when i felt really busy it just seemed like an overload like i barely have time to build this commander deck that i love how am i supposed to find time to catch up on all this content with the capital C.
0: Okay, actually I really love the way they handled this. So, mm-hmm. if you look into the if you look into the past, right? You go back 5 years, 10 years, whatever it happens to be. Basically, go back to 2008 when they released Iron Man. From sure. Iron Man on, they would do this big dump every year basically at San Diego Comic-Con where they'd say, "Hey, for the next Five years or whatever. Here are all the movies that we have coming out. Right, that, yeah. that's a thing that they that Marvel Studios has come to do. Meanwhile, and Marvel Studios was owned by Disney at the time. Still is owned by Disney. Meanwhile, they have a separate branch of Marvel that's not technically Marvel Studios, but is still associated with Marvel and owned by Disney. But it's a different different production team. Different, yeah, different people working on projects. Mm-hmm. And they made the shows like Runaways, like uh, Shield. You know all of those different shows that were on normal daytime television or nighttime television. Yeah, was run by a different production team or set of production teams or whatever. It was run by a different studio basically. Hmm. The movies were run by Marvel Studios and they're all fantastic and everybody loves them and that's great. However, I don't
1: know if I'd say all fantastic. Okay, you ever seen like, Thor Two? Yeah, I was going to say
0: there are one <laughs> or two of them that are pretty bad. That Ragnarok to made Thor. up
1: for it. I, I will say that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, but okay. Those aside, they're they're all pretty good. Even in, like just on average, they're all very good. Yeah. That said, these. new new shows that are going on disney plus are also made by marvel studios and what you haven't seen there are a few of them but what you've seen so far is that disney has ramped down production of movies and ramped up production of tv shows hmm. we have a few movies coming out that they've announced in some capacity that are staying with the mcu but they're bolstering their mcu like phase five or whatever phase four i think of like the mcu t- storyline includes yeah. the shows whereas prior to the the whole like pandemic and Disney Plus being a, being a thing that wasn't the case like shield kind of associated itself with the movies and mm. like things that happened in the movies would impact the show but the show would never impact the movies and this is this is Vaguely, not the yeah. case anymore the shows will impact the movies and they will all be the same storyline so i think it's a great play the other thing that is also exciting about it is so far the release schedules are staggered and they're also short so wandavision has a total of s- 7 episodes i believe or 9 episodes i think it's 9 episodes mm-hmm. Hmm and when WandaVision ends the release they release the first two episodes on the day of release and then they it's a an episode a week kind of like Mandalorian when we hit the ninth episode there's a two week break and then Captain uh the whatever Captain America and the Winter Soldier starts so it sounds like their release schedule is such that you're only going to have one show at a time to watch and they're only releasing one episode a week so it's not like you're hit with like two shows worth of content to watch all of a, all of a sudden okay they sp- okay. spread the whole release schedule out for the entire year and probably beyond that so i i actually think They've handled it very gracefully, and I'm excited to see where the rest of these shows come in. I have seen Wandavision so far, and there will be a new episode out the day that this episode airs. But it's interesting. It's a very creative take on uh, so far what we've been used to with Marvel. I'm, I appreciate them stepping out of the box, and my <clears throat> speculations on where they're going with it. Uh, I expect it to be really, really cool. It is very much like a culture shock type thing if you haven't, if you're not in, because it's 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 filmed and shot like a 70s sitcom. which... Which is very weird weird for Marvel, right? But they have these little tidbits at the end of every episode that kind of hint at something bigger going on. And I think that will be kind of the main... The actual story, but there's a whole like, I don't, don't, they haven't revealed much in the show, so I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying this, but in the comics, they had this whole run where Vision dies and Wanda goes nuts, like literally she goes crazy. And because she Mm -hmm. has all these powers, she actually creates like an alternate reality that she lives in. Hmm. And we saw, again, spoiler alert, turn off if you haven't seen Endgame or something. But like, we know what happens there with Vision. Yeah. And in, in the MCU so far, Wanda has lost her brother and she lost Vision. And I think this is her, this show is her snapping. And part of what we see as like the 70s sitcom is her creating this like perfect world for herself so that she can live Uh. with vision and, and that by the end of the show, she's going to be brought out of that and someone's going to have to quote unquote rescue her or like snap her out of it so that she can come back to being like an actual person in real life
1: I'll admit I think you sold me when I first heard about this I was like Wanda and Vision everyone's two favorite characters from the MCU uh, the two arguably most overpowered people we've got well all right, maybe maybe Captain Marvel's up there too but I don't know like it it wasn't selling me but knowing that maybe there's a bigger plan and maybe this is gonna have some kind of more potential I don't know sometimes like the Marvel films they can be a bit much like I, I couldn't Watch five of them in a row, uh, you know? Sure. Sometimes they're a little cheesy, but they're fun. They're, they're they're good old fashioned. You know, it's a superhero movie. You know what you sign up for. Like I will you say, go, you watch it, you get paid off. It's great.
0: Yeah. I will say that, that this... WandaVision is refreshing it's very different than anything that's that we've seen on television in quite mm. some time because it really does go back to being like it feels like a 70s sitcom it looks like a 70s sitcom the whole first episode is black and white uh interesting like it, it and most of the second episode is black and white it's it's just very interesting that they decided to do this it also pokes fun at, at the 70s sitcoms which is is cool as well like there are little tidbits mm. where they're just like oh okay I see what they're doing there um mm. but there is a bit bi- it's a sitcom so it's like, it, it, it feels like a sitcom, at least, so it doesn't really have a super cohesive story from episode to episode. But yeah. at the end of every episode, you can tell there is like a there is an overarching story that they are building, and I imagine I would imagine next week is going to be one of the first episodes where that starts to get explored more. Interesting. In depth. Well, I, I just finished. It
1: so yeah i was gonna say I, I'm, I'm done twin peaks now so I, i'm moving i'm ready to move on to a new show well, uh, although I, I will say whatever comes next has a you know pretty big shoes to fill twin peaks is that's an all-time haven't seen it. Uh, you'd like it it's awesome well,
0: maybe i'll add it to my list